0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of New Books in History. I'm your host, Sean T. Burns, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Timothy Shank. We will be discussing his new book, Realiners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy, which was published in October of this year, 2022, by Farah, Strauss and G. Rowe. Realiners is a sweeping new study of American political history, focusing specifically on the rise and fall of what once appeared to be a standard feature of American politics, durable political majorities, majorities large and sustained enough to affect significant change. A proverbial tour de force, the book ranges from the inegalitarian and white supremacist origins of American democracy in the 18th and 19th centuries to the surprising coalition that elected the nation's first black president, Barack Obama, at the dawn of the 21st. Along the way, readers are reintroduced and introduced to a diverse array of figures, founding fathers, civil rights icons, advocates for gender equality, and conservative firebrands. All of them help tell the story that Dr. Shank tells in the book. In an era where American politics seems stubbornly unwilling to realign, we are in fact recording this just a few weeks after the 2022 U.S. congressional elections. In essence, yet another draw, Dr. Shank's discussion of what it takes to realign couldn't be more timely. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Yeah, this is great. Uh, So before we turn to the book, uh, in case some of our listeners are unfamiliar with your work at Descent and other places, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself, your
1: background, your work, things like that? Yeah, and we should also just, in the spirit of full disclosure, mention that we've known each other forever uh, since yes. high school. And <laughs> this is coming from a place of just like deep affection from both sides. Uh, yes, no it, partiality. I this, partly because, uh, Sean, you know uh, from seeing me in high school that my sort of origin story as a historian was I was just, even back in the day, uh, just a huge Richard Hofstadter dork. And Mm -hmm. I was drawn then and still am to the model of history that Hofstadter was such a brilliant example of, which in my mind, I've come to think of as think like a social scientist and write like a novelist, or at least that's the ideal that you're aspiring to, while also trying to engage with the present, not in the sense that you go to history to answer present concerns or that your concerns in the moment shape directly how you view the past. Rather, you look around the world as it is, some questions occur to you, and with those questions in mind, then you leap into the past and you try and come out with something that's useful for the moment while also, and it will be useful because it reflects really high scholarly standards and it's, to the greatest extent possible, I sort of freedom from the sort of dogmatic restraints of the moment. So that's always been what's most exciting about me as, his, as a historian, And I've tried to blend that along the way with political engagement. Um, So while I did my PhD in history at Columbia, I'm lucky enough to have gotten a job. I teach at GW now. But I also have been trying to write regularly for wider audiences. And that led along the way to becoming co-editor at Descent, which is a huge honor for me. It's the longest running democratic socialist journal in the United States and a magazine that throughout its entire history has existed at this fault line between academia and the wider world. And having, I don't know, just like grown up with that as an aspiration and just immersing myself intellectually with those types of works, it's, as I mentioned, it's the ideal that we're always like failing to uphold in practice, but it's the one that keeps me going today.
0: And I can verify that's all true. It's been it's been that case way since high school. But I, I think that the book that we're talking about today, Realigner, is it really does fall precisely on that fault line you were talking about. Um, and I, you wrote something really interesting in the acknowledgments about how how it emerged, about how you were waking up following the 2016 Presidential election and and feeling that you it's a quote here I needed to write a book about something. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that and how it ended up with this project?
1: So the story really begins uh, in the summer of 2016 when I just finished writing my dissertation. I was looking for something to sort of give myself a break before I went into revising that book, a book that I intended to get on working on right away, and that still hasn't come out. It will, it will, it will. (laughs) But this project, uh, along with history, generally intervened and. The first sort of digression that expressed itself was um, I stumbled across this blog called the Journal of American Greatness, which was run by a group of like self-described pro-Trump intellectuals, which back in the summer of 2016 seemed like a very strange category, um, very uh, isolated and lonely one as well. And I ended up going down this rabbit hole. I was interested in that group in particular, but also the intellectual history they were drawing from, and I ended up reading about folks ranging from James Burnham to Sam Francis, a cast of characters who have become more familiar over the years, but who even to me at the time, someone who had just finished a PhD in American history, a lot of this stuff was a kind of revelation, and it was especially exciting for me to see how much of it overlapped with concerns about the making of the American state, the American political elite, that I'd been thinking about in the context of my graduate work, but that I hadn't connected to American politics today or the American right in any way like this. And so I write this piece. I end up spending the bulk of the summer working on this piece on the intellectual prehistory of Trumpism. And I just felt like that there was maybe a book in here somewhere about the American political elite. Um, I talked to an agent at the time and he's like, yeah, you know, like the piece is good, but will anyone care when Hillary is elected president? And I was like, that's an excellent point. Okay, back in the (laughs) closet it goes. But then wake up the morning after the election and I feel like, okay, something shocking has happened here. And lots of people are gonna be writing about this. I want to be one of them. And the initial impulse was a sense that if Trump's election shows nothing else, it proves that the boundaries of American politics are wider than we had thought. And I felt like some sort of big picture reckoning with the road that made that if it didn't lead directly to Trump, at least at least made that particular destination possible, that that was worthwhile. But over time, I came to think for several reasons that this wasn't enough to justify the book. One is that, okay, why boundaries like that's a broad theme, but you need something more specific. But also, as I was working on the book, it kept some of that, all right, responding to the change political landscape that Trump's victory brings to the site. But I also ended up just, I feel like being really concerned with some conversations in the center, the left, mainstream American politics and political affairs, just generally political history and contemporary politics more generally, some conversations about democracy that I felt like were valuable in some respects, but misguided in others. And the two that loomed especially large for me were what you could think of as the crisis of democracy industrial complex. So some books are really, really fantastic in this category, some books not so fantastic. But generally, the body of scholarship that's emerged that talks about the importance of norms about institutions, the threat that's posed by right wing, right wing populism, that one body of work existed, and I felt like it was met By a left critique that said, like, listen, yes, norms and institutions, like, those matter. But what we really want to focus on are transforming the norms, transforming the institutions, not just defending them from right wing populist assaults. And I felt like a point that was missing in both of those conversations was the question of, like, okay, if we're talking about democracy, what does this actually mean? I think it means trying to build majorities behind a common agenda. And when I was going back to this initial concern about, both the boundaries of American politics, but also the particular role played by the American political elite, I realized that the talent, the skill, the power that really characterizes the political elite in a modern representative democracy, it is this ability to, forge coalitions, binding together millions of people, even if only for a moment, behind a single cause, a single candidate, a single party, and that this is a defining fact of democracy as a system. And for anyone who looks at the world today and wants to change it at scale and the way you can using the power of the American state, I think that this is, for all its flaws, the best strategy that we have. So that's a long answer to this question of how the book ends up taking the shape that it does, is focus on majority making, is that... I came to think that this was a subject that was essential to understanding how we got to where we are today politically, also important for thinking how we might get out of the present condition, and one that for a variety of reasons, I didn't think that historians in particular and really academics generally had treated with the rigor that it deserved. That's great. Yeah. So this this leads me to something
0: that, well, I mean, you said it there, You're you're you're, you're talking a bit about how... The left thinks about democracy how the left thinks about bringing positive change Uh, and it's not that the the book is particularly burdened by theoretical discussions it's extremely approachable. But it's making some some real theoretical interventions right I mean towards the end of the book I kept thinking over and over again of of Stuart Hall and the great moving right show um, about how. The assumptions we tend to see on the left uh, about how class politics is going to manifest itself in the voting booth don't always work out that way. Am I right in seeing some of that critique here?
1: Oh, absolutely. And Hall was someone who I had read in grad school and liked at the time. But then really, I actually came back to him when I would finished a draft of the book and was thinking about ways to reshape it. And there's in particular a collection that was put out by Verso in, gosh, um, sometime semi-recently. And it's called, I think, The Long, Hard Road to Renewal. And it's a collection of pieces from Hall written basically over the course of, I think, like the 60s into the maybe early 2000s. And it's his running commentary on British politics in particular, where the great Moving Right show is, it's a signal essay, but it's part of a broader analysis. And Mm -hmm. reading that book, it was just this fantastic moment where I felt like having gone through my own journey in writing Realigners that Hall was someone who I felt like expressed so much of where I had landed and had insights I feel like still decades later hadn't been fully incorporated on the left. And one of them, I'm sad to say, so the book begins with this fantastic introduction where he argues, among other things, that sort of in line with what you're just saying, that political analysis on the left is, in Hall's words, pitifully thin. And the argument there is that There are a few key areas where left-wing analysis of politics, which is to say left-wing analysis of democracy, in Hall's view and also in mine falls short. And one of them, as you were just alluding to, is this problem of class reductionism, just this notion that results at the polls can be easily deduced from – how people vote can be easily deduced from their position in class society. And if there's a misalignment, it's because of some simple notion of false consciousness. Hall has no time for that. He also, interestingly, from the perspective of 2022, has no time for the argument that Thatcherism was merely fascism or that thinking about right wing populism generally was just fascism. He says that if you want to understand how politics works in 1980s Britain, and I think there's a lot of ways we can extend this analysis much more broadly, says that you have to realize that the people on the other side, those right wing populists, that they are addressing real problems in a serious way. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but that the simple dismissal, this notion that this is just a form of fascism, that there's nothing new here, nothing significant, that's misguided. And Hall also goes on to insist, which I think is, again, very important for today's perspective, that you can't think about left and right in isolation. If you wanna think about the challenges faced by the left and also the success of the right, you have to bring them together in a single framework. And that's something that's very much on my mind when I was writing the book. And then sort of capping it all off with this argument about democracy. And the way I think of it is Hall's argument was that there's no single majority out there waiting to be made at any given moment. When you're trying to put together an electoral coalition, it's not as if you are assembling a jigsaw puzzle. It's a lot more like you're playing with Legos where you have these blocks and you can put them together in, you can't do infinitely different things with your Lego collection, but you can make a bunch of different models. And the key is to understand both the constraints that are limiting the capacity to make a certain type of majority at a certain time, but also the room for maneuver within that. And just this combination of factors about pushing the left not to fall into economic reductionism. And I would say, less significant in Hall's time, but important for ours, I would say also racial reductionism as sort of monocausal explanations of any kind, encouraging leftists to take the right seriously and to think about the right and left, not in isolation, but together, and then stepping back just to reckon ruthlessly with history as it actually plays out, which includes being aware of the capacity for building different types of coalitions that Legos versus jigsaw, muzzle, the jigsaw puzzle approach to politics all that to me was just tremendously inspiring. And maybe the book would have been a lot easier to write if I had read this book before, but it was <laughs> wonderful to have in my head as I was revising. And as I'm you know, on the sort of circuit of talking about the book now, I just cannot uh, speak highly enough about Hall. And I see this book as completely in the tradition of what he was trying to do.
0: Wonderful, yeah, and and Duke University Press has been reissuing a lot of his writings recently, so it's a lot of that stuff is is available uh, in convenient form that it might not have been before. But
1: uh, yeah, but going, I just to jump in though, yeah. I will say that uh, having, among other things, at at Descent edited a review of that collected series and paid some mm-hmm. attention to the way um, it's been received. I feel like a striking thing about Hall, as he's discussed, is he's cited, I think, correctly as just a brilliant theorist of identity and as a corrective Mm -hmm. in conversations within the left about sort of arguing as he does, as I was just making him argue now, like arguing against economic productionism and arguing for the same of identity, like all that is there. But the Hall that was really inspiring to me was less the theorist of identity than the student of democracy. And I think it's useful to bring that slightly different perspective into the conversation too. Mm
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this brings me to, I think, an interesting question, um, you know, so the the book uh, is about democracy, about how you build coalitions uh, in in well, this particular democracy, of the United States. But you, of course, start back when the United States claims to democracy are very thin, if if real at all, right? We're 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 back in the revolutionary era. We're dealing with figures like Madison and Hamilton. W- what's the reason for starting the story there?
1: So one important reason was I want to explain the in that sort of Stuart Hall-esque spirit of reckoning with specificity. One important specificity about American democracy is that for almost of all, all of our history, we've had two parties. And the consequence of that is that Unlike in a parliamentary system where you might have three, four, five, six, seven different parties, in those cases, you have all your parties running uh, and then voters go to the polls and you'll have a bunch of people with sort of like low double digits um, uh, elections and then party leaders form their majority coalitions afterward. In the United States, because we have this two-party system, you have to build your majorities at the polls, which is an important distinction. And I wanted to explain why... They were saddled with that system, and the story of the making the Constitution is an important part of that. I felt like it was significant as well to show in that founding generation, this group that has no intention of creating something like the democracy that we would see today, but how they stumble into realizing the significance of majority building, because one of the arguments of that introductory chapter is that The intention of the founders, it's not to impose a narrow oligarchy, but they do think of themselves as basically trying to chart a midway between aristocracy and pure democracy. And the ideal is to have a system where the natural aristocracy in the language of the time would run the show, but they would do it with the consent of the governed and the legitimacy that came from it. But the hope was that we'll have this system where the vote is thrown out to, like, yes, by our standards, a pitifully small number of people, but by the standards of the time, the largest that had ever been attempted at that scale in human history. will throw open the election to, in effect, like, oh, there, yes, there are still property restrictions, but a almost property list on limit of white men. And they will be able to determine their leaders, but they won't have, they'll at least be able to pick from within the natural aristocracy but this public at large won't have a role in the day-to-day actions of the government. And ideally, the natural aristocracy will more or less govern by itself and then just benefit from that legitimacy boost every couple of years or so that it will gain from accountability. And what's wonderful to look at in the founding generation is to see how quickly that consensus falls apart. And it's replaced by this idea that once you have this parts and divide emerge, is split between Federalists and Jeffersonian Republicans, that especially the Jeffersonian Republicans realize right off the bat, the way to settle this civil war within within the American elite that opens up in the 1790s is by mobilizing the public on your behalf. Again, a restricted public, but by our standards, but an extraordinary expansive one by theirs, and that enlisting the help of this majority, really creating a majority that that gives you an extraordinary power. So the combination of being able to explain why we have this two-party system in the first place, showing the almost like, in a sense, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about like a key moment for me was realizing that there's in this long conversation we've been having recently about the electoral college and is this an undemocratic institution? Was it meant to bolster slavery? Should we get rid of it? You know, today it is a not quite cutting edge, but like Advanced enough progressive notion to say we should abolish the electoral college and just have direct election of the president. A shocking moment for me was seeing James Madison in the Constitutional Convention in 1787 saying, like, yeah, we don't need to have an electoral college. Like, that's fine. We can have a popular vote for the president. Why? Because Madison is assuming that the public will be so demobilized that the wider we open the field, the easier it will be for one of those natural aristocrats to assert themselves. So, sort of uncovering that particular notion of democracy and then showing how it fell apart, all of that made it feel to me like that there was a justification for Dragon Readers through the story of Philadelphia and the rest one more time. Well, it's a very engaging version of it. I I enjoyed it. But
0: I think that's really important because although the electorate has expanded now, obviously – you're right in pointing out we still have this system where there once you're there's there's two sides there's the people for whom you have to turn to justify rule and then there's the group that does the ruling and that group that does the ruling is relatively insulated Except that they, in order to win victories within that group, they have to reach outside to that electorate for justification. This is you quote. It's a fascinating petition from uh, from uh, Virginia in the what I think 18th century, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the bright golden yeah, yeah. their
1: own post revolution, post monarchy government.
0: Right. Yeah. So this bright golden line between the rulers and the ruled. And as I was reading this and, and thinking about the the. Contemporary moment, you know, again, uh, in, in advance of the elections and Donald Trump and his sort of perpetual outsider status. Is, is this part of the reason why we have this, this fascination and constant power in outsider candidates in American history?
1: Yeah, I think it gets to the character of the system with this sort of halfway house it occupies between aristocracy and pure democracy, which I think leaves the notion of the desire for sort of like a pure representative of the people and really a system where we get to govern ourselves, that that's almost like a phantom limb in the body politic, right? We want it to be there, even though we know intellectually that it'll never actually happen. And I think that. The recurring appeal of the populist outsider is another way that that desire for just direct control for our, the desire for direct control over our own lives. That's one way it expresses itself, along with just the perennial case that The sort of structure of American life is inevitably going to be unsatisfactory in any number of ways, and that it's always easier to criticize from the outside. Therefore, the person who has the benefit of not being accountable in any particular way for the system as it is gets to say, you know, just put me in charge and things will be easier. That sort of story of a constant triumph of hope of over experience is also there yeah so it's, it's
0: sort of this perpetual structural complaint people don't even r- always realize they're making right
1: yeah it, it, we, each generation will discover it in a, in like a new way it will feel so fresh and vital to you at the time and then you'll have the this is us having the conversation of the like early middle-aged uh 30-somethings being right. like oh shit the stuff that we thought was significant <laughs> at the moment we're starting to see it coming around again that's it, it's comforting in a way but also quite bleak in another Right. Right.
0: Right. So th- this makes me immediately think I'm, I'm in Tennessee, so he's sort of always on our minds down here of the fir- maybe the first great outsider, Jackson. Right. Um, and and he if, if certainly the disputes between uh, the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists revealed to the- Madison and his fellows, uh, elites, that there there wasn't this comedy amongst elites that they could expect to have happen. You know, they, they realized that uh, there was going to be division. But they really get the message, think of poor, you know, uh, uh, Quincy yeah. Adams, Adams here, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the shock of the the elites no longer are running the show now, right? It, 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 that's, that's what we did. But this is also an interesting place where I think that class and race intersect in an extremely powerful form to start disrupting elite visions, you know, while the... Uh, in the era of good feeling, certainly these were people who did not have particularly enlightened perspectives on race or class, yet they seem more tolerant compared to some of the people who follow. Um, is, is there... How, how important is andrew jackson here i guess
1: so jackson obviously is essential although this is where the bitter cynic in me will point out that it's not the case of displacing the elite it's a case of replacing within the elite like jackson still who had <laughs> been a senator long time serving government including as a general but also was like one of the wealthiest like a wealthy planter in his own right and who brings in a coalition of people with him as you know in the book my way into the making of Jacksonian democracy is Martin Van Buren. And Van Buren's interesting because he's part of this post-founding generation school of politicians who is reconciled to the existence of politics, the existence of party machines, the existence of partisan conflict in a way that Madison and Hamilton and that cohort just never allowed themselves to be. For Madison, even someone like Madison or Jefferson who embraced um public mobilization to an extent, uh, maybe a cautious embrace, but who were much more comfortable with it by 1800 than they had been in 1785. Um, Even they viewed the sort of partisan mobilization as a temporary expedient because the goal for them was still to get to a place where Americans wouldn't have to worry about parties anymore. Van Buren comes out of New York. um, He is completely reconciled to the idea of a permanent partisan establishment because he believes that this is where there's a, he's a bridge between, among other things, Jefferson and Jackson. He thinks that in order to hold off the threat of a moneyed Hamiltonian aristocracy reasserting itself, the people need an organizational representative. And he sees the Democratic Party as the way, or his Democratic Party, as the way of battling the influence of money. And that this, while well, himself, of course, in the way of elites and populist elites, ending up doing quite well for himself anyway. But- what's striking about van buren is that he provides this sort of representation he's one of those people who sees in the 1820s a capacity for building a national majority and his vision is of a national majority essentially anchored between new york and virginia so it has to be a north south coalition where mm-hmm. because of the nature of that division questions about slavery will be will be push to the side because that can always threaten the alliance, but you can unite the people behind this. In the first instance, Jackson as this charismatic popular outsider, but then over time behind this sort of class-based attack on the Hamiltonian menace. So it's giving that but combination of like a populist rush through the charismatic figure of Jackson and also the making a permanent partisan machine to keep that campaign going that distinguishes Jacksonian democracy along with, as a consequence, you you end up having a complicated interplay between the need to push slavery to the side, a growing desire to present present yourself as the defender of the interest of the ordinary white man, and then tension over the degree to which that inquires an explicit embrace of white supremacy. I say tension only because what made me want to write about Van Buren in the first place is that in addition to this role as a kind of intellectual architect of Jacksonian democracy, one of the fascinating things he ends up doing is not just building a bridge from Jefferson to Jackson, but from Jackson to Abraham Lincoln. And I say that because after Jackson serves as president two terms, after Van Buren serves as president for one term, he's out of power for a while, stays out of power for the rest of his life, but tries to get back in by running in 1848 as the presidential nominee of the Free Soil Party. Like largely forgotten today, except by free, except by scholars, the Free Soil Party is a crucial moment toward mainstreaming political abolitionism in the United States. To saying that we, there is a possibility that we can build a northern free state majority that can provide a democratic solution to the problem of slavery. Now, Van Buren himself is far from a full blown convert to the cause of abolitionism, but a collection of sincere abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass, who will support Martin Van Buren in 1848, but not quite be able to stomach supporting Abraham Lincoln in 1860, does see that campaign as worthwhile. So what I wanted to do with the Van Buren chapter was both show the emergence of this Jacksonian coalition, pay attention to the way in which it explicitly foregrounded those questions of white supremacy, and then show how it ended up almost in spite of itself, pointing the way toward a Republican Party that would, by the 1860s, be presiding over the United States' first sincere attempt at multiracial democracy at scale. And that, to me, is just an extraordinary transformation.
0: Very fascinating. And one of the things I'd like to explore about this bridge, right, is that the bridge here from Jacksonian democracy to to Lincoln is via abolitionism. But of course, the Free Soil Party does not succeed electorally. Um, and we, the sort of abolitionism as to such a degree that it ends up in, in American politics, free soil politics, certainly, it, it only becomes successful with Republicans in part, at least it seems from from you know what you're drawing out here, because they're also able to not just attack the slave power, but they're able to position themselves as opponents to the money power. And that would then tie it back to Jackson in another way as well, right? That they're, they're in order to be able to get in to the inside of the elite, you have to be able to to frame yourself as outside of it, regardless of your own personal income. But that you're you're saying there's something wrong with the distribution of wealth in the country.
1: So that's a piece of the puzzle, but I wouldn't lean too far into it because you have to look at the particular problem that's facing what will be Republicans by the 1850s. Is that they have to build a as I was saying a northern free state majority. That means mm-hmm. getting ex-Democrats and ex-Whigs on your side. So that means that you have to have a message that can appeal to those ex-Democrats who are used to denouncing the money power and who'll be drawn by that and who like this, who can be brought into the camp by these denunciations of the slave power. But if you want to appeal to ex-Whigs, including among them Abraham Lincoln, who had never really gotten to those attacks on the money power, you need something that speaks to them as well. And what I wanted to do was, and this is sort of my realigner for this discussion, is Charles Sumner, who's a fascinating figure because he had... Basically, come into politics. He had some Whiggish sympathies, but he had been willing to ally with um, Democrats as well. Basically, his entire political career, unusually for the time, is slavery oriented, or rather driven by the idea that the United States needed to crush not just slavery, but white supremacy. He says Uh that in so many words that he will not rest until the word white is driven from the statute books of the country. He is an example among other things of the American political tradition in the 19th century being pushed to the outmost limit in terms of racial equality that was thinkable at the time. And with Sumner, he's someone who in a sense is almost willing to take any, he recognizes that if his side is going to win, there has to be a majority behind it. The majority that he sees is this Northern free state coalition, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to abolish that, to destroy that old two-party system, and to bring those ex-Democrats and ex-Republicans together in this campaign against the slave power, which he believes is the central cause of his time. And by telling this story, I wanted to draw upon just a fan- what, to my mind, is one of the most exciting bodies of scholarship that's emerged in the last few years, which is this new attention to the radicalism of the early Republican Party, a story that you can see in the work of historians like Manisha Sinha or Matt Karp. It's just really, really wonderful stuff. And I think with Sumner, who is regarded as this extreme fringe figure by many folks, especially in the South, the United States, the 1850s, you can see that story, but following his career, not just from the triumph of 1860 or even the end of slavery, the even greater achievement by 1865, but the thing about Sumner is that he also lives into Reconstruction and that what you can see through him is not just a story of that democratic achievement, but why by the 1870s, the once radical promise of the Republican Party, including the Republican Party that, as Matt Harp among others, has just alluded to, is like, yes, had was able to speak in this language of an assault, attack on the money power, And also by the 1860s, an embrace of multiracial democracy, at least for crucial figures, how that radical project ends up dead ending by the end of the 1870s in the sort of the twin nightmares of the Gilded Gilded Age plutocracy, more or less, and Jim Crow. And reckoning with that dilemma seemed to me a project that in our own time, when we're trying to figure out both the the promise of the American political tradition and also its limits, like that seemed really important. Yeah,
0: I I found the the section on Sumner restoring his radicalism, or at least restoring it in my mind. <laughs> I could say what I how much I remembered from uh, my uh, exams in graduate school, but it, the, he it really was powerful to see it. But then also to see how swift that decline was. I mean, this this is a much commented upon thing, but the the decline in the radicalism of the Republican Party in. The reconstruction era is still breathtaking to behold. It, it, it is in your narrative here, I found.
1: Yeah. And I think it the benefit of this sort of Sinha Karp et al scholarship is that it lets us see this as the puzzle it was rather than just an inevitabil- inevitability. And I think I ended up describing somewhere in the book, something I'm kind of happy with as an idios- idiosyncratic liberal in his time, but in a sense, the first liberal of ours in his sincere devotion to Like, especially the sort of cause of racial justice in the United States, but also all the paradoxes that threw himself that it threw both through him and the Republican Party into when they tried to figure out how to convert something like that ideal into reality.
0: Yeah, and this leads us to, again, to the latter part of the 19th century to the Gilded Age and and. uh, your point about liberalism, I think, is interesting here because we see the rise of an American sort of form of Tory democracy with the Re- the Republicans post-Reconstruction, right? Would that be a fair way to say it?
1: No, so I want to almost say that this is – Post Reconstruction, yes, but more in the 1890s sense than mm-hmm. in the 1870s. Eighteen more in the 1890s than in the 1870s and 1880s, because my read, at least on this Gilded Age period, is of an attempt, more or less, to keep refighting the Civil War and some other cultural wars, especially around Protestants, Protestants and Catholics, and there's continued variations on the just the geographical divide between North and South, so that it you don't get a sort of serious intellectual innovation that including explicitly grapples with the question of industrial capitalism which is where i think sort of the american version of Toryism will become really relevant i think Mm -hmm. that the combination of the waning of the significance of those civil war era loyalties at least outside the south combined Mm -hmm. with a sort of the continuing erosion and eventual all essentially destruction of black political participation in the south and then the increasing salience of economic divisions in the age of Rockefeller and Carnegie, all of that, I think, comes to a crisis point in the 1890s. And that's really the period when it requires some degree of intellectual innovation along the lines of American Toryism rather than just continuing to refight the Civil War. So what does that intellectual innovation look like there? What, what, what stood out to you? So to me, what's shocking about the period, uh, and this is 1890s, a period that's very familiar in American political history, chiefly um, in scholarship that takes on the question of the rise and fall of populism, right? Mm-hmm. There's libraries of books that have taken on the question of how did this People's Party, which at its most ambitious was devoted to this idea of creating a unified expression, political expression, a voice for the working class during a period when class conflict in the United States is as violent and as ferocious as anywhere in the industrialized world. You know, how does that promise of the People's Party and populism, almost that they could do for industrial capitalism, what Republicans had been, been able to do in the era of slavery, be this transformative force that overturns the two parties and forces the American political system to confront an issue that it had marginalized for too long? How did the populace mm-hmm. fail? And there are a number of fantastic books in that tradition. So many that I didn't even seriously consider t- trying to take this question off for myself just because I couldn't see how <laughs> I could say anything new. But what I did feel like was worth commenting on, and this gets to the point about American Toryism, was, well, what if you accept that the story wasn't just about the populace failing, but about Republicans in particular succeeding? And I say that because by the end of the 1890s, Republicans have mm-hmm. formed a multiracial cross-class coalition with deep roots in the working class. It's not a working class party in the way that Democrats will be in the era of the New Deal, but it is a party that, among other things, is capable of carrying nine of the the 10 most populous cities in the country in 1896. That seems to me a striking achievement, striking because what Republicans end up doing in this period is proving that it is possible to reconcile mass democracy with industrial capitalism, a question that is of a lot of significance, not just in the United States, but around the world, especially if you're looking across the pond in Europe in the 1890s, countries like Germany and France, which are struggling with robust socialist movements, well, getting back to the, you know, the old chestnut, why is there no social in the United States? One mm-hmm. question is not just about this failure of populism, but also about the success of Republicans at building a majority in 1896 that will last more or less without interruption into the Great Depression. So right, how, incredibly durable. the last thing, just to really nail this home, how this happens in 1896, which is coming in the middle, it's near the end-ish period, but after years of a brutal economic downturn that kicks off in 1893, how this majority in favor of capitalism that transforms the Republican party from the Sumner party of freedom of, of abolitionism and Republicans in this period become the party of business and then turn that into an electoral majority in sort of the teeth of a vicious economic downturn. To me, that seemed, again, just like a question that was really worth answering, not just to, as I used to look at the ways that the populists fell apart, but what Republicans had to do right. And this is where this idea of American Toryism uh, providing a democratic response that can build this build majority consent behind industrial capitalism. Well, if you're someone who looks around the world today and sees a lot of capitalist countries with the, without a robust socialist movement in charge, this is a question that's relevant not just for understanding American history, but really global history after the 1890s.
0: Right, and their and their power is only disrupted because of the Deus Ex Machina of the Great Depression, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only reason, because they they have everything, pre, you know that that majority is is enduring regardless of the progressive challenge under Woodrow Wilson and stuff. It it endures well into the 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 30s. So the depression makes me think. I'm going to jump forward yeah. in time here, right? But the depression. And then what seemed to me upon reading the book, I must admit, when I got towards the end, the heart of it, and this, of course, was featured in, uh, well, this was the heart of your feature in the New York Times recently, Barack Obama, 2008, the Great Recession, the Great Depression. What role do these seismic economic events potentially play in disrupting existing majorities and building new ones?
1: All right. So the way I want to frame this is let's look at the, the majority that emerges under the New Deal and last from the 1930s into the 1960s behind the Democratic Party. What's remarkable <laughs> about that coalition by American standards is that it is a time when the electorate is divided more or less along economic lines, where the less money you have, the more likely you are to vote for Democrats; the more money you have, the more likely you are to vote for Republicans. This might seem like a, especially from a Marxist perspective, which we're, a left perspective, which we were alluding to earlier, mm-hmm. like the way that politics should be. But in fact, mm-hmm. oh, you, but even a cursory glance or at American political history or the rather more extensive glance that I provide realigners, what it shows you is that, no, this is a departure from the norm, that the standard for American political coalitions is for them to be divided along economic, cultural, just a whole helter-skelter, crazy quilt line of divisions. So the 30s into the 60s stands out as a moment when politics is divided along economic lines, roughly, and where that working to middle-class coalition reliably puts Democrats in power. Not all the time, not universally, but they are the dominant party in this period. And what you see in retrospect i think you can see that 1890s into the 1960s in particular as a moment of just strong party coalitions and that and party majorities it's just that What begins with the strong Republican majority that grows out of the crisis of the Gilded Age gives way to the Democratic majority of the New Deal era. But in lots of ways, these coalitions are reflections of each other, that they emerge out of societies which have been bound together in this large nation state and have these really powerful institutions behind them. They are sort of creatures of organizations. The way I describe it to my students is that by the 1950s, You can more or less say that Democrats are the party of the AFL-CIO and that Republicans are the party of the Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. What happens over the next seven years is you see the breakdown of both that Democratic majority and of that institutional organizational structure that to varying degrees had underpinned both the Republican majority of the 1890s to the 1930s and the New Deal coalition that replaces it. After the, during the Great Depression. And what you see is that no longer does it make sense quite to say that Republicans are the part of Chamber of Commerce and Democrats are the part of the AFL-CIO, but rather that Democrats are the party of MSNBC and Republicans are the party of Fox News. And there's connections between those two, certainly, but that you have to think about the ways, not just that... In order to understand, say, the Democrats, not just the way that Democrats are building on this longer historical tradition and Republicans in there, so it's Democrats going back within their party over centuries, Republicans over a similarly extended period of time, but you have to understand the ways in which the parties are mirrors of each other at any given moment. And in particular, how both are transformed by the emergence of coalitions that are divided rather along, than along those lines of economics, which loom so large, so significantly in the 1930s, how they end up reflecting a kind of combination of Ideological and identity based divisions, so that Republicans become the party of conservatives, Democrats become the party of liberals, but that the meaning of conservatism and liberalism also change during these periods, partly to reflect the coalitions that emerge. So that, among other things, you have the creation of a type of right wing populism that turns out to be an extraordinarily potent force at the polls in a way that you end ends up producing sort of majority reliable majorities for Republicans, at least at the presidential level from Nixon to Reagan, kind of into the Bush years. And then even today in its diminished state in the form of Trump is still capable of do it, turning in a strong enough performance that democratic dreams of a second new deal have been reliably thwarted among other reasons, because of the failure to build up a new new deal coalition of their own.
0: This is where I, I want to bring in Phyllis Schlafly, who you, you spend a uh... A good bit of time with. And she shows, despite the fact that she is certainly a, a, you can trace this right-wing populism back to the 1950s through her,
1: but she, in a way, becomes more radical over time, doesn't she? So what I loved about the Schlafly chapter, which was just for me, and honestly, by the way, for me, the book really clicked when I realized that there were just so much more similarities, at least from my perspective, between someone like Charles Sumner and Phyllis Schlafly than I would have thought about going to the book. Those sort of different visions of Republican majority building across the century to me that came into focus because I ended up seeing Schlafly, who I think today is remembered not insanely as sort of she's significant because she was the face of the anti-feminist backlash in the 1970s, the crusader right. against the equal rights amendment, and someone who, isn't this kind of crazy, ended up campaigning for Donald Trump in 2016. What I realized when I dug into her archive was that for Schlafly, the campaign against the ERA and against feminism generally was just one chapter in a larger career that was devoted, as she saw it, to building a new Republican majority rooted, as she would describe it, in the grassroots taking on a battle against the Kingmakers. And the Kingmakers, for her, it's a group that she describes in the 1950s, early 1960s, as a liberal bipartisan elite that has Roosevelt Democrats on one side and Nelson Rockefeller Republicans on the other. And this campaign to provide a voice for a grassroots movement that, in her eyes, is almost this kind of fusion of Robert Taft and Joe McCarthy, that ends Mm. up providing a bridge across the, it's another one of the bridges, sort of at least a line of descent from this 1950s moment, that party of Robert Taft and Joe McCarthy, down to 2016, where she sees Donald Trump as the latest vehicle for this long-running ambition, this sort of fusion of majoritarian politics with a transformative agenda to reshape American democracy, American life um, more generally, so that Trump ends up becoming an inheritor of this much larger tradition, which includes, by the way, even just some, to me, incredibly striking stuff, like seeing Schlafly in the early 1990s in full Pat Buchanan mode, essentially outlining the platform of Trumpism some uh, like some 25 years before Trump takes a stage at the Republican National Convention to condemn uh, a out-of-touch ruling elite that's wrong on borders, wrong on crime, wrong right. on globalism, and all the rest. So to see this sort of... Not just as a key figure of anti-feminism, but really almost as the like founding godmother of American Trumpism. That was just a revelation.
0: But of course, that all seemed exhausted in at the end of two thousand eight. Right, like this whole idea that there was. I. I, I mean, I remember professors in graduate school giving lectures talking about the rise of a conservative era after the new deal that had now finally ended with the election of barack obama as president of the united states and i remember in your book i forget which senator it was but there's a republican senator who's at the inauguration who's sitting there and he's looking out at the the huge crowds for the inaugural address and he goes boy we are in real trouble for a long time it's a little more colorful than that but you know so It looked like it was dead, but then it came back. Why? What happened here?
1: Yeah, this is part of me where as a person of the left, I'm horrified. And as a historian, I'm absolutely fascinated. And (laughs) it's great to see that every time we want to call an end to the game, it finds a way to keep on going. So this is where I felt like I had to do the Obama chapter, uh, which might be, you know, reflecting on it retrospectively, I was like, oh, man, like more words have been written about Barack Obama than probably any other human in history with the probable exception of Donald <laughs> Trump. So like, what makes you think you could possibly have anything useful to say here? And partly it was because, as I talked about in the Times piece, that section on Obama has my single favorite research find of the book, which is this unpublished, oh, yeah. uh, like book-length manuscript that Barack Obama co-wrote with his closest friend at Harvard Law School back in the early 1890s, ni- sorry, back in the early nineteen nineties, uh, outlining outlining his program for transforming American politics, a sort of playbook for remaking the Democratic Party in American life more generally, but also that In this goes back to the spirit of Stuart Hall. If we want to understand how he got to now, we can't just look at the right. We have to think about the right and left in conversation with each other, hold them within the same analytic frame, and then look at the ways where, among other things, in retrospect, you can see how that Obama coalition won. It wasn't quite what it was described to be at the time. Uh, Nate Cohen at the New York Times has done great work. Look, it for just for the public, explaining that this notion that Obama was elected solely because his coalition of the ascendant, uh, basically a union between college-educated white people, African Americans, and a rising, more diverse, especially more Hispanic electorate, that this more or less condemned Republicans to demographic oblivion. What that overlooks is the fact that circa as into 2012 uh, brought the sort of single largest demographic cohort in Obama's coalition was white people without a college degree. No, Obama consistently shellacked in the South with Southern white voters, but does well, better than John Kerry with white voters in the North, and then including working class white voters in 2008 and 2012. Really, really significant part of the coalition, about 30, 40% of that Obama majority in 2012, more than African Americans, more than young people, more than Hispanics. So telling that story, or at least having a sense that because of this manuscript about the, from Obama that I have a sense of what he wanted to accomplish. And we now know that the Obama coalition wasn't quite what we thought it was, circa 2008 to 2012, that this allows us to have a different perspective on how exactly Obama ended up clearing the path that led to Trump. To me, that ended up justifying a chapter that could just be dismissed as yet another attempt to say something about one of the most famous people in the world. <laughs> Do you think that that perspective um,
0: undermines the sort of J.D. Vance style argument about where the Trump voters came from? I mean, you're absolutely right. We look at the, this this n- no college degree white voter. And of course, we've seen lots of studies showing us about how the Democrats have become the party of, of uh, the wealthy, so to speak, or at least the highly educated. Um, what does this tell us about? Do you think there's voters who flip-flopped, or do you think that there are voters who just chose to show up one year and chose not to show up the next year?
1: No, so this is my line on 2016, which is just a reflection of where I think the scholarship is on this, is that if anything, it strengthens the case for a kind of appreciation for that Vancish white working class community, because mm-hmm. it makes clear that the challenge that Clinton ran into in 2016, and that Democrats have confronted since then, is you know, often uh, debates over Uh, especially on the left and within Democratic circles over how to win elections, they can turn into an argument between persuasion and mobilization. Is the idea that we need to reach out to voters who could be potential who have supported Republicans in the past, whether that's Mitt Romney or Donald Trump, is it these sort of affluent suburbanites who we can bring over who like Mitt Romney are discussed by where the Republican Party's gone, do we need to court them? Or do we need to try to win back those JD Vance style Obama Trump voters? Well, it turns out that Trump's victory in 2016 was, in good measure, a pers- the story about persuasion makes a lot of sense for those white working class voters. There were a mm. lot of Obama Trump voters. They fell into that category. And it raises a question of how someone could support Barack Obama in 2012 and then f- flip to Donald Trump in 2016, question I'm happy right. to talk about more. But that the challenge that Harry Clinton went in, ran into wasn't just about this sort of Math, the collapse of support with white working class voters, it was also a failure to mobilize African American voters to the same degree that Barack Obama had. Now, this is, to some extent, understandable. You're only going to get the first black president who also happens to be one of the most effective politicians of his generation once. So it's not shocking that black voters wouldn't turn out in the same numbers for Clinton as they did mm-hmm. for Obama. It's also worth noting that she did they she received more votes from that community in 2016 than John Kerry had done in 2004. So she's doing better there. But the problem is it just wasn't at the numbers that Obama had led Democrats to believe that they could count on coming down the road. So what you see here is the struggle of a Democratic coalition that on the one hand, shedding working class white voters, on the other hand, doing better with these affluent suburbanites, you know, you're losing those Obama, Trump, white working class voters, you're picking up Romney Clinton, college educated voters, and you're struggling to mobilize this work, especially African Americans. But increasingly, what you're seeing is an erosion of Democratic support with non white voters, more generally, who didn't go to college. And there are... As we saw in 2022, reasons to not go full doom and gloom about this coalition, it's still strong enough to elect Joe Biden president and to buck trends about what you would expect from a midterm when the incumbent is so unpopular and there's some pretty dismal economic statistics out there. On the other hand, if you're someone like me coming from the left who thinks that democracy, what we should expect from democracy isn't just a rejection of Trumpism, but an attempt to alter the balance of power in American life so that ordinary people have more say over how they run their own existence, then I think that The Democratic coalition, as it's emerging, just isn't going to get the job done so that if we want to break out of the stalemate that Americans have found themselves in, where on the one hand, it feels like everything is falling apart. On the other hand, nothing ever seems to change. Then some challenge to the system that's emerging seems to me (laughs) just an indispensable first step toward that larger project.
0: I'm put in mind of something I saw on Twitter this morning, and this could be apocryphal, but it was supposedly a member of the the National Railroad Union who said that he had a "impeach Trump" banner in his front yard for three years, and voted for Biden, and and now, following the news that Congress is going to prevent uh, that union from striking, uh, he's now going to take his back pay and and donate it to Trump. Um, I it uh, I, I think there um to go back to that that point about the the people who who Went from Trump to Obama, uh, the the divisions may not be as deep in some places as we tend to think they are, and they're much deeper in others. Is is that fair?
1: Oh, yeah. So this is part of the story about the transformation of American politics. A key text for me, there's a brilliant work that the political scientist, James Hugh Wilson, I'm actually looking at this book right now, comes out in 1961. It's called The Amateur Democrat. And the argument in the book is that there's a transformation in the American political class where the age of the machine cigar-chomping politician is coming to a close, and this new type of amateur is emerging. They're college-educated. They care more about defending a cause than just winning elections so that you can hand out patronage and gain power for yourself. And from our perspective, at my perspective, I think yours too, there's a lot that's admirable about the displacement of like sort of pure patronage thinking, uh, seeking mm-hmm. and this sort of devotion to these larger ambitions. But what's happened today is that those amateurs have become a new sort of professional class, a professional class that in the first instance, disproportionately located in DC and New York, reflects the interest of a larger donor class, which has disproportionately influenced by one, like the top 0.01%, of course, but also by this college-educated top 10% or so of voters for whom politics is basically a pastime. It's a hobby. And there's a conservative version of this story Mm. and a liberal version of this story. And in both of those versions, it's all but unthinkable to imagine someone going from Obama to Trump or Trump to Biden But there is this larger, this other group out there, which ends up having an enormous sway over elections because these two coalitions have ended up being so narrowly divided of people who don't pay that much attention to politics and who can be swayed for sometimes it's because just of pocketbook issues. Sometimes it could be because, oh God, there's an election denier running. He's a psycho or like, what are Republicans doing about Roe v. Wade now? But this group of people who don't follow politics in the same way, who aren't addicted to it, aren't treating it. As a hobby, the way that some people with baseball like those voters end up feeling they're, while simultaneously being determinative of elections, also persistently ignored because they're not shaping the function of the parties in the same way that this larger class first of like political hobbyists and then this sort of professionalized amateurs who are still running the show, devoted to their causes, but less devote, but less dedicated to winning election this narrow sense all of that contributes to the dysfunction of american politics as we see it today which i think brings it back in a lot of
0: ways to that 18th century petitioner in the bright golden line right uh, the, the the number of elites have have grown the number of people there are there are people who are heavily invested in political battles on a day-to-day basis and then there are those who uh, are looked to to provide the justification for uh, those people to continue in office um, so perhaps speaking to that class of political hobbyists, um, but I, I'm going to throw out a cliche, uh, you know, book interview question here uh, in part to wrap us up. I'll have one more question after that. I, You know, as Tim said, we've known each other a long time and we could go on for hours here. I've peeked behind the curtain. We did talk for about an hour before this. <laughs> but, um, to, but what is the if you one thing you want people to take away from this? Here's my cliche. You know what? If they put down the book what's
1: the big thing you want them to walk away with? So at least one point would be that I think it's pretty intellectually fashionable to assume a kind of hard structuralism that to take the position of a hard structuralist who'd say like, listen, the system as it exists, it's the inevitable response to you know pick your handful or maybe just single causal factor that's driving the system. And that there's nothing much that we as individuals can do to change those larger structures and i think that obviously structures play a key role in shaping our life um, as i said one of my ambitions as a historian is to live in the space where you're thinking like a social scientist and writing like a novelist and right. of course no single person can alter the trajectory of an entire system one reason i wanted to write that obama chapter was mm-hmm. by showing the to my mind sort of real radicalism of the early obama You can then, almost in a parallel to thinking about what happened to the Republican Party of the 1850s and 1860s, you can see how Obama can in some sense do the extraordinary thing, become the first black president, but fail to deliver on this larger vision of social transformation that animated him at the start. But it's to show that even someone as gifted, as brilliant, and as so good in so many respects, with, to my mind, a very, very, very good strategy at the outset, even he can come up short. But that Doesn't mean to give up. I think it just suggests the necessity for thinking about collective action, ways that we can mobilize together and taking this question of democracy seriously, like confronting the fact that if you're someone with my politics, that there are some issues that you will care desperately about that resonate with the wider electorate and some that don't. And that ultimately politics, it's not a question of giving up on one issue, but of being Ruthlessly strategic, especially if you see yourself as advocating on behalf of powerless and marginalized communities, those are the people who can least afford a type of utopianism that's unmoored from the world as it is. Like The key point that you have to find is that place where just on the outer edge of what's realistic. So you have to avoid, and this is something that, again, I think that young Obama actually was brilliant on, you always have to find that middle space between an idealism that just as preoccupied with the world as it could be a realism a almost fatalistic realism that assumes that nothing can ever change the obligation that anyone who i think feels a responsibility to make the world a better place that we should take for ourselves is to look at those collective visions of transformation which again for me just putting my cards on the table this means someone who thinks that the spirit of democracy at its best is about And about American politics, that's best, and about collective action, that's best, is finding ways to give ordinary people more say over their life. And that requires, to my mind, a redistribution of both money and power in the first instance from the top 0.1%, and then more broadly from a top 20% that's doing quite well for itself to a bottom 80%. You know, That's a significant distribution of resources that's going to require state action. If it requires state action, that means it requires democratic mobilization to build a large-scale coalition that can force this type of transformation through. And that if you have this project, a project that's concerned with providing good jobs, good educations, good healthcare, good homes to people, making those basic elements of a decent life available to the largest number of people. To me, that's an extraordinarily noble program. And that ends up forcing you to think about democracy, not just as a kind of means to an end, but something worthy in itself. And that's not anything I would have said when I started writing this book, but it's something I came to believe really passionately over the course of writing it. So at least if I could persuade you to take that argument seriously for a while, I'll feel like I've done my job.
0: Certainly persuaded me. Um, And uh, as I said at the top, I think, uh, if nothing else, the continued stasis in American politics indicates that we need to be engaging with these sorts of questions in the way you do here. So uh, obviously, I encourage everybody to read the book, read the Times piece, uh, read you in dissent. Uh, But I'll leave you with one thing I, I like to ask at the end here. What are you working on now?
1: So I had to push that dissertation book back one more time. Um, so I'm writing a short book that hopefully, if I meet my deadline, will come out early in 2024. It's going to address some it's sort of a coda to realigners. And it addresses some concern not some concerns, but some objections that or desires uh, questions I had about issues that I raised here that I felt like deserved more emphasis, including I was sick of having to do some caveat along the lines of like, listen, what goes on in American politics is significant. You have to think about it within the framework of the American political tradition, but that this broader migration of working class voters away from parties of the left toward right-wing parties doesn't just happen in the United States, happens across big chunks of the industrialized Mm. world. So I wanted to look seriously at the international side of the story. And I also wanted to take a deeper dive into, as you know, in the book, I tell, as you know, from me in the book, uh, when I get to the sort of recent political history, there's that chapter on Schlafly, there's a chapter on Obama. So a rise of the right and then, then the making of this Obama coalition in response to it or in conversation with it. The piece that's missing is what did left-wing parties do during that sort of reign of Schlafly period? So this hmm. sort of 1968 to 2008. And this is a period where a lot of those shifts that become so present today are already well underway. Like 1968 is really like the shotgun for this. And so I wanted to tell a story that looked at the transformation of these, especially left-wing coalitions, not just in the United States, but around the world, and that zeroed in on this sort of pre that tied the Obama-era narrative to this earlier conversation. So I'm writing a short book that tries to, by looking at a sort of handful of political consultants who are coming of age in the United States in the early 1960s, and then shaping democratic campaigns in the 1980s, and then end up, because American political consulting becomes a globalized industry by the 18, by the 1990s, they end up helping run campaigns in countries running from South Africa to Israel, to the UK, oh, wow. to Germany, to South Korea, you name it. Uh, and then following that story through the Obama years. So addressing in a sort of a bit more rigorous way because these are people who their full time job is winning elections and it's zeroing in on this period, which I discussed, but don't focus on directly, and then globalizing the story. Hopefully that will be coming to bookstores uh, sometime early in
0: 2024. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, an apology to the editors right now, right? Well, (laughs) Tim, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. Take care.